people think his Jesus's name is like Jesus, first name Jesus, last name Christ. Like Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which is like Messiah. Uh, Jesus is just a really bad uh, transliteration. We went from Yehoshua in Hebrew to Yeshua in Aramaic. Yeshua became Jesus in Greek and, and uh, Latin, and then that's how we got to Jesus. Uh, if Jesus was born today, we would probably call him um, Josh or Joshua Josephson. His grandpa's name was Joseph. So Josh Josephson is, is the God that, as Christians, we believe is God. So it's kind of a bit of a, men, a mind bender for a lot of people. But there's just so many things that we assume about Jesus that just aren't true. Like when we maybe picture him in our minds, he's got a long flowing robe on. Well, we know he didn't wear long flowing robes because he considered them to be showy. He actually, there's a verse in the Bible where he makes fun of people who wear long robes. Things like people assume he has 12 disciples. He doesn't. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna Fleur. This is episode 10 of 2023. And today we have on the podcast someone who is like an old friend of mine, someone I know from really like my late teens. We ran into each other on the internet and I heard about his new book. He's become a famed author and I wanted to get him on. The guest is Jared Brock and the book is A God Named Josh. It's a biography on the historical life of Jesus of Nazareth, including his assassination masterminded by a power-hungry mafia family. So this is Jared Brock's take on this thing. Like, what did Jesus look like? What did he wear? Where did he come from? What did he eat? What was his schedule like? How did he pay for stuff? What was his name if... Jesus is not like the official original word used to call this guy out of a crowd uh, in his own language. So that's what we're talking about today. You're going to really enjoy this episode with Jay Brock. And thanks, of course, to Compassion Canada and to Scripture Entangled, a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society who are making this podcast possible this whole season. We wouldn't be able to do it without them. And if you are looking for content like this. You want the back catalog of podcast resources. We have all kinds of stuff for you. Check out our YouTube channel. We've got hundreds of podcasts. We have dozens, uh, maybe a hundred tutorials. I'm not sure what the count is that we're at now, but we would love to resources you and your team with whatever we can to help you communicate the best news in the world. That's why we're doing all this as we navigate this digital world and this digital age. How do we do that better? So let me tell you a little bit about Jared Jay, as he's often called. Jay is an award-winning author of things like A Year of Living Prayerfully. He wrote The Bearded Gospel Men and The Road to Dawn. He's a director too of several films, including PBS, the documentary Redeeming Uncle Tom with Danny Glover. How cool is that? He is the editor of Surviving Tomorrow and he has written in The Guardian and Esquire and Smithsonian, USA Today, Huffington Post, Relevant, Christianity Today and Time Magazine. He's traveled to more than 40 countries, including North Korea and the Vatican, and he does not own a cell phone. We're going to be talking to him about why not on the podcast today. So please enjoy this episode with Jay Brock. Jared Brock, welcome to Word Made Digital. It's a real delight to have you on the podcast today. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I, obviously, we were talking before we started rolling that you're my first interview of many to come. And I love that it's the fact that it's someone I've known for 20 years. It just, it's a nice ease into these waters. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. And I feel like maybe we have 20 years of catching up to do at some level, but um, it, as a means of introducing yourself, you know, you're a director, producer, writer, thinker, um, prophetic voice, I think in the church. Um, let's just start with the question of, did you always have writing and did you always have authoring books in your mind? Was this the life plan at 18 years old when you were talking about what you wanted to do next? How did, how did you become uh, this kind of person, this prolific writer of, you know, 333 more pages for us to read? <laughs> yeah. So I was at a leadership conference in Chicago when I was 21 and mm. there was a British uh, business speaker talking, and he he asked a question. He said, "What strengthens you?" Uh, he, in his definition, a strength is not something you're good at; it's something that makes you strong. There are lots of things that we're good at that we hate doing. And uh, mm. as soon as he said, "What strengthens you?" I was like, 
writing. That's what I love doing. And I had been earnestly searching for a calling for about two years, reading books, mentorship, courses, uh, conferences. I'd been earnestly looking. And um, by the end of that session, I, I tuned out the rest of the talk. And by the end of it, I kind of had a vision of a calling for my life, which was to tell stories that lead people closer to God and give away the profits beyond my needs. So that's what we've been doing for seven eight, or eight years. As a teenager, I had no sense that I would be a writer and a filmmaker someday. But now looking back, it seems pretty obvious. Like I grew up in a home where we weren't allowed to go to the movies. So of course I'd become a movie director. Like what else would you do for a living? <laughs> um, and my mom told me that starting from the age of like two or three, I started carrying a couple of pens and scraps of paper in my left pocket. And all these years later, I still carry two pens in case one goes out and a notebook in my left pocket because I'm left-handed. So it, it really feels like, like I'm doing what I'm, I've been told to do. And, uh, I'm going to keep doing that until they stop me. Wow. Well, and you know, the context of meeting you was, uh, your, my memory of our early interactions was around your work in justice and, you know, bringing freedom, peace, justice, you were doing creative work, you were creating film. I mean, this is like from the, from the kind of my earliest memories of you that, that this kind of seems like, um, the trajectory you were on, but yet maybe, maybe I should say, but you're still doing it 20 years later. Um, and I think that's kind of remarkable because I think we all know like Jay, like a lot of our peers who maybe started out down a path in this direction have, left their ministry work or have left the church or, or whatever. So, um, you know, maybe why are, you know, maybe, maybe this is the way we'll transition into this, this whole conversation about the topic of your book, but like, what, why are you still here? <laughs> yeah. I had some really formative experiences in high school. Probably one of the biggest was our Christian club at our school got kicked out of our school and our parents mm -hmm. had to take the school board to court to let us back but we just decided to be bold in our faith. And we met outside uh, all winter. The coldest week was minus 36. And local Whoa. churches brought soup and hot chocolate and sleeping bags. And we got to cuddle up beside girls. So it wasn't that big of a deal. And <laughs> as a teenager, me and some of my friends were like in the newspaper and on TV. Huh. And, you know, we saw 40 kids get saved that, that year because everyone's like, what's up with all these weirdos in the snow? Like, we really had a choice of, you know, like Joshua says, like, choose this day whom you will serve. Like as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so I think the kind of the theme of all my work has been just that prayer of Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And basically mm -hmm. just as I've grown up, I kind of look at different issues, whether it's pornography or human trafficking or landlording or bankster interest, whatever it is. And I just go, this doesn't line up with what I see in scripture at all. And so I'll call it out, whether it's with a documentary and get a law changed or whether it's with a book. And, and I find that my stuff now is more actually focused on the church because churches really just don't seem to care about economic injustice. And, mm. and we're like part and parcel of it. We've been totally uh, colonized by the culture on this. And so uh, I do feel like I, I resonate a lot more with Jeremiah and Ezekiel than I used to, I guess is what I'd say. It's just like feeling like that strong sense of like, Oh, like churchgoers really don't like me anymore. But I just, I read the Bible and I say like, Lord, I want this in our world. I want more kingdom come. So yeah, I'm just, I just, I'm trying to figure out how to like gently and humbly speak to these issues. And I think the best way to do that is to just read Jesus's words to people. So my new book has over a thousand scripture references in it. It's like a hundred thousand wow. words and like half of it is Bible, but it's like directly from the Bible. It's a wonder they don't just call me up for plagiarism on it. But yeah, I just, I just want to, <laughs> I want, I want people to, to know Jesus, uh, because I, just the world would just be way better if, if we all, you know, spent time with him, became like him and do the things that he did. Hmm. So, I mean, let's move, let's move there in the conversation. The book, we haven't even said the name of it. This new book, I love it the title, A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. So if you're watching on video, uh, audio people can't see it, but there's the cover, A God Named Josh. And uh, 
I mean, like there's so many places I want to go because I want to nerd out on a lot of sort of this theology stuff with you because it's just sort of fun for for me as well. Like, I mean, this classic thing of like a God named Josh, uh, like when people realize like Christ is not the last name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, they, people think like, <laughs> you know, like your name is Jay Brock, his name is Jesus Christ. There's just like just so much basic cultural misconception. Like we just, so much stuff is missed. So um, maybe at its high level, before we start getting into some of these themes that you're pulling out of the book, like why this book now? Um, you were probably writing this book a few years ago, I would imagine, you know, in the timeline of how books come out. So like what was happening in your world that this was the book you wanted to write at that time? So this book started in a really random way. My wife and I were cooking Mexican food and I was tossing beans in like chili and jalapeno and lime. And Michelle looked at the beans and she goes, I wonder if Jesus farted. And we just like descended into giggles. And <laughs> we just started having a conversation about the human life of Jesus Christ and how, like, what did he eat? What did he wear? How did he pay his bills? And I just just got really fascinated by that idea. And then I started asking questions like, what were his thoughts on money? What were his politics? Was he a communist or was he like a free market capitalist? Uh, what was his <laughs> philosophy? Was he a cynic philosopher or a stoic? Was he an Epicurean? Was he a mix of all three? Like, and what about his Jewishness? And so basically, yeah, that turned into a God named Josh. So each chapter, it's like the economic Josh, the Jewish Josh, the political Josh, the, the relational Josh. And, but you're absolutely right, Joanna. Like, People think his Jesus' his name is like Jesus, first name Jesus, last name Christ. Like Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which is like Messiah. Uh, Jesus is just a really bad uh, transliteration. We went from Yehoshua in Hebrew to Yeshua in Aramaic. Yeshua became Jesus in Greek and, and uh, Latin, and then that's how we got to Jesus. Uh, if Jesus was born today, we would probably call him um Josh or Joshua Josephson, his grandpa's name was Joseph. So Josh Josephson is is the God that as Christians, we believe is God. So it's kind of a bit of a, men, a mind bender for a lot of people. But there's just so many things that we assume about Jesus that just aren't true. Like when we maybe picture him in our minds, he's got a long flowing robe on. Well, we know he didn't wear long flowing robes because he considered them to be showy. He actually, there's a verse hmm. in the Bible where he makes fun of people who wear long robes. Things like people assume he has 12 disciples. He does it. I love that. The fashion critic. You can just stop there for a sec. You're talking about like Jesus making fun of people. Like you don't picture this. Like like just even that first thing you, that, that picture you've just given me of like Jesus with his like, I don't know, his practical short robes, (laughs) you know, probably above the knee or around the knee. And then you're like, and then he's making fun of these guys with their fancy clothes. Like I was just at the airport yesterday and was looking at this family of very expensively dressed people, including a boy who was no more than 10 years old. And he probably had five or $10,000 worth of clothing on between his Louis Vuitton backpack, his Balenciaga shoes, like, you know, drip head to toe. And he's just a kid. And I just feel like that makes me think like, what kind of like color commentary, if you were in the line at the security, you know, the x-ray machine at the airport, uh, if Jesus, <laughs> if Jesus was there, like what color commentary would he be given about all these people around him? You don't think of him as someone who might make fun of somebody else's clothes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, he definitely, he definitely just saves it for the religious people. There's, there's absolutely no judgment of people outside the Jewish flock. You never hear him insult a Roman or a Sumerian or a yeah, Gentile. That's true. It's just the high priestly clan basically. But yeah, there's just so much that people assume about Jesus. Like another example is like, People assume that Jesus had 12 disciples. The Bible's very clear that he did not have 12 disciples. He had at least 70 disciples, and many of them were women. We have five named female disciples in scripture, and two more if you include Lazarus' sisters. And we know more about some of his female disciples than we do about some of his male disciples, his inner 12. People assume there were 12 disciples. There were 12 apostles, which scripture says were chosen from his bigger following. So there's just a lot of, a, a lot of stuff that maybe we miss. I don't know if it's because we just don't read our Bible or pay attention or just because we assume things from Sunday school and culture. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. Maybe that's like kind of the the biggest question that this leads to when you read the title and like um, you come into a curiosity about your writing here, a God named Josh uncovering the human life of Jesus Christ. Like, how have we missed this? <laughs> I want to get more into some of these examples with you, but 
Um, I mean, that stuff is so fascinating. But like, um, as you were looking into this, what is your sense of like how we've missed the human Jesus? How do we get here? I think part of it is it's a lot easier to spiritualize everything and just, you know, pie in the sky with Jesus someday. And when Jesus says that he comes to set the captives free, to declare liberty, we just assume that that's just spiritual. But the word he uses there is a jubilee. The jubilee is that word is in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and it's in lots of extra biblical things. He's declaring a debt jubilee, the cancellation of debts, which Israel was long overdue for. They were being crushed by the rich, and it was time to reset the economic clock, like Leviticus talks about. Um, Jesus is for the here and now. If he's if he's useless for this life, if he, if if everything he did was just spiritual, then why did he bother to heal people? Like, well, we're going to die eventually. Like, why raise anyone from the dead? Like, why would he do that? Like, Jesus's message has to be good news for all of eternity, and that includes today. So I think we've just, we've done a lot of over-spiritualizing of the life of Jesus. I'm not saying let's chill out on the spiritual side. I'm saying let's just bring the human side back because he was fully man and fully God. Yeah. Let's let's dive more into this idea of like you're talking about his name, uh, Yehoshua ben Yehoseph, if I could say that right. That's Joshua from Joseph. Uh, and you're saying like, you might even go by your grandparents' name. Um, the naming of Jesus was hugely important. Like God says to Joseph, this is what you'll name your kid. So why, why is it important for us to get back to that? Like, I think it's kind of important that we know what his name was <laughs> because God really cared so much to tell his father, say to Joseph, like you will name your kid Joshua. So, uh, you know, why, why does this name, even just as the humanity of Jesus, like, why does that matter so much that we get clarity on that? If Jesus was around today and someone was like, Jesus, it's you, he's not going to correct him and be like, bro, my name's Josh. Like, I, <laughs> I just don't think that Jesus is like that. Like most people in the Bible seem to call him teacher, right? Rabboni in Aramaic. He gets called Rabboni a lot, which is like rabbi, basically. Yeah. And uh, I don't think Jesus would be precious about his name. I really don't. Um, and also, we're not Hebrew, right? We're not Jewish. So I don't know anyone who who is their real name today is Yehoshua, who doesn't call themselves Josh. So I don't think I don't think Jesus would get mad about it either. My real name is a biblical name. It's Jared. Uh, it's Methuselah's grandson, second oldest man in the Bible. Um, but I, you know, everyone calls me Jay. Uh, some people call me JJ, Gerald, Harold, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, and this idea of, I think what you're capturing in a lot of what you're writing here is, is not just the historic, but like the cultural context of Jesus being born to a particular people at a particular time, a particular place. Um, something you've said is, that just struck me. He, he walked at least 21,000 miles in his lifetime. And then this just stood out to me just because it was funny. Like, and he never tasted tomatoes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where did you even find that? Like, were there no tomatoes in Israel in the first century? Like what, what, how did you even learn that? <laughs> well, so, so that one's actually pretty easy. So there were no potatoes or tomatoes in the old world huh. until Columbus comes over and discovers the new world. Those are those are North and South American uh, things, which is crazy because, you know, when you think of potatoes, you think of England and Ireland, right? Like when you think of tomatoes, you think of Italy, but those things Mediterranean were... Mediterranean food, yep, yeah. But those were not, not uh, around in Jesus's day. We know some of the foods that Jesus uh, would have eaten. Obviously, he has lamb at Passover. Um, he, he would have had barley if he was poor. And if he was dining with Pharisees and with tax collectors, he would have had wheat, uh, wheat as well. Um, the Bible, there's a bunch of foods that I talk about in the book, um, that are mentioned in the Bible and mentioned in the new Testament. So we can assume that he, if, if he's, if he's rolling deep with some of these rich people at various points, he probably tried everything that there was to try, whether it's cucumbers or pomegranates or whatnot. So, uh, you know, I'm not going, what would Jesus eat on, on us here, yeah. but it's just, it was interesting to me. And then, yeah, he walked a ton. There's no mention of him ever, owning a chariot, uh, a Mercedes or BMW chariot or a Maserati uh, motorbike. He, he rides a donkey, like a colt once. Um, he takes a boat a couple times. He has some buddies with boats. Um, and 
but yeah, he mostly walks around and, uh, and stays with friends, uh, stays with various people in his circle. And, uh, and, but yeah, he's, I wouldn't say that he's homeless. I would say that he's itinerant and he definitely walks a lot. Taking a moment in this conversation with Jay, because we want to talk to you about untangling scripture at a new level as he's trying to help us understand how to interpret the life of Jesus through the scriptures and through history. Does the Bible ever feel to you overwhelming and confusing and hard to believe? Well, our latest season of Scripture Untangled, which is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, is bringing you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to inspire you to dive into the Bible and understand it. So if you love this conversation about a God named Josh, I think you're going to love Scripture Untangled podcast. You you can listen for free and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can go to scriptureuntangled.ca for more info. Yeah, well, I was actually one of of my questions for you. I was going to say, what was your take on Jesus as sometimes characterized as like a homeless person? Um, Because, you know, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. But I feel like we've missed something there because we have a certain idea in our head when we say a homeless person. Um, But Jesus um, wasn't homeless in the terms of like extreme poverty. We often think of homelessness too related to, uh, you know, uh, mental health issues and addiction and all this kind of stuff. That's not what Jesus was, although he interacted with people like that all the time. Um, Jesus had a source of finances. Uh, like he, there were all these people around him and they all seemed to figure out how to, how to eat every day. Like, can we talk about that? Let's go into this. Like, what is the economics of Jesus's ministry in the context of that? Yeah. So, okay. So he's got 72 disciples, scripture, Luke says, and so that's, that's a lot of mouths to feed. Right. And we know, we know that Jesus can turn water into wine. So, and he can multiply fish and bread. So, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, in a pinch, I'm sure they can take care of themselves that way. But the Bible does say that, um, Jesus visits, visits his mom and brothers and sisters in the place where they're staying. Now, Joseph drops from the text quite early. And there is a lot of speculation that Jesus is actually helping to care for his mom. She, he has probably rented her this house. And when he's on the cross, he, he, you know, he's dying and he says very few things. But one of the things he says uh, to his uh, disciple and potentially cousin John is, please take care of my mom now. And John writes that from that day, he takes care of his mom. So the assumption is that Jesus potentially is the oldest child. Uh, he has four brothers and at least three sisters. The assumption is that Jesus is taking care of his mom as the oldest son. And he then assigns that task to his his disciple cousin, John. So um, where did he get that money from? So there's a couple of options. Number one, he was a carpenter. The actual word is tecton. Um, there is a specific Greek word for a carpenter who works with wood. Jesus is not assigned that title. He has almost no wood parables. He has tons of rock and stone parables and sayings. There is, it is much more likely that Jesus works with stone instead of wood. Um, so whether he was a foreman or had a construction business, we don't know. Whether he continued tent making doing that, we don't know. What we do know from scripture is that uh, the, dis- the the people who write the Gospels, they disclose something very embarrassing for the time. And what they disclose is that Jesus's ministry is supported by women. These, right, women with no legal rights, women who are second-class citizens, Jesus's ministry is being bankrolled by them. And we actually know some of their names. There's a woman named Joanna. There's a woman named Susanna. Um, we can be assured that Jesus's aunt Salome is part of it because her husband Zebedee uh, has a fishing business with multiple boats and multiple employees, as well as his sons, uh, including Peter, who work for him. So he's being bankrolled by women. Um, One of the people who bankrolls Jesus is actually the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. That is an astounding realization that Jesus is actually being funded by enemy money. It's crazy to think about. It would be like if uh, Zelensky was being funded by Putin's accountant. You know, it's just crazy to think about. <laughs> right. Like, and and do you think and the people got that at the time? Like, do people do you think 
was there an understanding that like this was sort of a radical thing or was this all very quiet and like it's kind of later that, you know, would the people following him around have known like this guy's being, as you say, Putin's accountants bankrolling Zelensky? Like, do you think there was a sense of that? Yeah, I, we we're too far removed to know uh, the the text certainly doesn't uh, yeah. doesn't give us any insight. But but within fifty years of the resurrection, they're right. You know, within one generation, they are writing down the stories. So whether this is the new revelation, like hey, I know you've probably been asking how Jesus paid his way. Actually, Herod kind of did a lot of the work for us. Um, uh, whether they, that was common knowledge already, uh, or if that was new news for a lot of people, we don't know. Joanna in particular, they just mentioned Joanna. She's attached to no man. We don't know her business. We never hear from her again. The assumption is that the New Testament church knew who she was. She might right. be the Latinized Junia that Paul writes to. He calls her like, like outstanding among the apostles. Like Joanna might be Junia. We don't know, but, um, yeah, just Jesus is supported by, the by these rich women and when we picture jesus with his disciples we typically picture like 12 middle-aged dudes they're likely much younger than that potentially teenagers there's also a lot of women with them including some of their own aunts and mothers uh we read in the crucifixion story that that there have been a number of women following them from the very beginning from his desert dwelling days with his kinsman john the baptist and when you do the math they're traveling with several of their moms and aunts, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> well, and if the context, again, I just, cause I'm just off a of family vacation where I was hanging out with some teenage nephews and whatever of mine, nieces and nephews, like it makes sense actually that like if my 15 year old, 16, 17 year old nephew is going to go follow some religious leader, like maybe his aunt Joanna is going to come and make sure everything's all Amazing. right. <laughs> Amazing. I see it. And I get pay it. pay for it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you need like, you need another snack? How, oh my gosh, how much do these teenage boys eat? <laughs> but, but Joanna, honestly, let's, let's go to the foot of the cross though. Yeah. Who, who is left of all of Jesus's, you know, tens of thousands of people have taken Jesus's food Thousands have taken his sermons, hundreds have taken his healings, 72, 70 to 72 are just calling themselves disciples. There's the inner 12 apostles. Who is left at the foot of the cross? All four gospel writers admit the truth. It's John and four women. It's, it's Mary of Magdala, who we call Mary Magdalene. He, Jesus probably called her Maggie uh, or some equivalent of that. It, Mary Magdalene is, is sort of like a nickname. She was Mary from Magdala. And uh, it's it's aunt it's two of his aunts and his mom. That's who's left at the cross. It's yeah. it's mostly women, and all four gospels admit that that it's the females who are the most committed disciples, the most fearless. Uh, they're also the first to see him alive again. Uh, Mary of Magdala is the first to be at the tomb, uh, seeing Jesus alive. She's considered the apostle to the apostles because she goes back and reports to this early church that hey, our rabbi is alive again. Uh, so it's it's just really yeah. interesting how dedicated uh, the female disciples were. Well, and of course, as a woman, that is encouraging, um, but also sort of disheartening to recognize like how much of that on one hand, like, yay, the women were there, like finally we're naming it, but also like, wow, um, I am a church kid. This was not taught. This was not emphasized. Um, it was largely missed, overlooked. Um, and like in some ways, like, I don't think it was conspiracy theory, but like systematically <laughs> left out. Uh, you know, so what have we, you know, I mean, on one hand, like we can say, why did this happen? Um, maybe there's some obvious way answers to that, but also like what has been lost or like what, what is maybe on the other side, what is lost or what is restored when we identify like what was really happening there? Yeah, like I mean, especially when you read Paul, there's a lot of women involved in the ministry. Uh, he church plants with a woman and her husband, uh, multiple church plants. Uh, the first church planter in Europe is a woman. Um, there are female deaconesses and prophetesses, and like women occupy every role in Scripture. The only role we don't see a woman in is the role of an elder. Every other role in the Bible, we have a woman in that context at some point. And so, I, you know, I think part of it is just cultural. They didn't give women the airtime on, like they didn't give them the page count. 
that they gave to the male stories. Um, and women were just in a subservient position in the culture. But the fact that the gospel writers make a point of saying Jesus was bankrolled by women, they were the most courageous, they were the last there and the, the first in, last out, uh, that's, that's really telling. I think just in general, we just don't have a good conception of, of Jesus's disciples. Like, um, for instance, like when most people, if you were to say like, who are the 12 disciples? People would be like, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, actually, I don't know who the disciples were. Like the easy way to remember is the first six are Simon, Simon, James, James, Judas, Judas. Those are the first six. And, uh, he's got multiples of everything. He's got four Marys in his life. It's an absolute nightmare, but he, two of them are business partners, several sets of brothers, several sets of cousins. A lot of these guys know each other. What's really interesting is after Judas commits suicide and the early church is trying to figure out a replacement for him, they put forward the names of two dudes. And those two dudes had been disciples of Jesus longer than all of the apostles had been disciples of Jesus. So he has other people who've been following him since the days of John the Baptist. Two of Jesus' disciples, he actually steals from John the Baptist. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And then when John points at his kinsmen and says, behold, the Lamb of God, they're like, bye, John, and they follow yeah. Jesus instead. So th- there's a lot more relational fascia than we give than we give credit for. We just think like, you know, Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and just like picks people randomly. It's like, no, no, no. He knew these people. He's related to these people. They're already in relationship. And and when he chooses them, they drop everything to follow him. Well, and you see too, this, I- this idea of like um, with Simon Peter, there's the healing of his mother-in-law that takes place before Jesus calls him, which implies he has a wife, which implies he may very well be a dad. We don't know, but you know, in a time where babies <laughs> were, birth control was less, was less of a thing, you know, you could assume if you have a wife, pretty soon after that, you might have a kid. And so suddenly it's creating like this kind of picture around the people um, that is just more three-dimensional. And I think, frankly, more interesting. Peter's the only one who at the time of following Jesus in the flesh uh, is mentioned as having a spouse. However, later on uh, in the New Testament, it looks like, aside from Judas, obviously, who is now dead, that all the other disciples did get married because it talks about how they take their wives on their mission journeys with them. So it does seem as though the the rest of the apostles did, did get hitched at some point, potentially to other of Jesus's disciples. They're like, you're crazy for Jesus? Too? I'm crazy for Jesus. Let's do this journey together. We have no idea. Like, yeah. we don't know what happened to Mary Magdalene. Um, she could have been single the rest of her life. She'd been, been married the whole time. We just don't know. There's a... There's a piece of the story that you you spend a, a lot of time on, which I think is historically significant. You know, there's been uh, wars fought around these issues around like the Jews and, the, you know, the Jewish people killed Jesus. It's led to a, sort of a lot of kind of awful things in the world. But But you talk about looking at it from a different angle there is sort of let's let's go there let's talk about jesus is killed he's assassinated or he's executed um what what did you discover through your work and through your writing about this critical piece of the story mm-hmm. yeah so this was a big one for me so if you ask the average christian like who killed jesus there's most people would say like the Jews, like uh, the Jews killed Jesus, right? If you really press, they might be like, okay, the Jews got the Romans to crucify Jesus. And then if you, if you really press for like a spiritual answer, it's we all killed Jesus. Like, I mean, obviously, theologically, we all killed Jesus for sure. Um, but I was really interested in the mechanics of like, how did this actually happen? Like in yeah. real, in real life, how did this actually happen? Uh, and, and are the Jews, all the Jews who've ever lived in all of human history, are they responsible for the death of Jesus? Is there a blood curse on them? Because they say to Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children. Hmm. So there's actually a there's actually a term for what that is, the idea that the Jews killed a deity. It's called Jewish deicide. And it wasn't repudiated by the Catholic Church until quite recently, like within the last hundred years. And that's wow. after a thousand years of persecution of Jews at the hands of Catholics. And, and then obviously Lutherans were horrible to Jews as well. Um, Jewish deicide is nonsense. It's not scriptural. We now know the crime family that killed, uh, Jesus, that, that orchestrated the killing of Jesus of Nazareth. So they, the, the paterfamilias, the man in charge of the family, his name is Annas, A 
A-N-N-A-S, Anas, and he is a despot. He is incredible at industrial scale bribery, the biggest um, house ever excavated from first century uh, Israel. It's this massive 13,000 square foot stone mansion. Um, they, this family was rolling in dough. They think that they may have made the equivalent of up to a hundred million dollars a year through all sorts of scams. Um, they, they dominate the Jewish high priesthood for about 60 years. Um, Annas is in power for a long time. He gets his sons elected. He has a nephew that gets elected. He basically bribes his way to the high priesthood. Uh, he gets his, his son-in-law Caiaphas in as high priest. Uh, and Caiaphas is the kind of the the holder of the office while Annas behind the scenes is the string puller the whole time. Mm. And Annas has multiple runs in, run-ins with Pilate. They have three big clashes, Jesus being the third clash. And uh, yeah, the house of Annas, they're mentioned 84 times in the New Testament. Annas is mentioned four times by name. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like for instance, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's arrested by Annas's treasury guards. He's taken from there, not to the Praetorium, not to the Romans, not to Pilate. He's not taken to the temple. He's not taken to, the, to Herod. He's taken to the high priestly house. And the first of his five trials is privately alone with Annas. What is going on here? It's Annas and Caiaphas who take him. To Annas, the father-in-law, Caiaphas, the son-in-law, high priest. Yep, they're the ones. mafia family. Yeah, basically, yeah. And it's it. they are the ones who say the blood is on us and on our kids. These are evil men. So th- they're Jewish by descent, but not by faith. They do not believe in the prophets. They only listen to the first five books of the Bible. They don't believe in resurrection. They practice usury and interest. They devour the houses of the poor. Uh, they're incredibly evil dudes, and they have no problem executing Jesus after what? After what? When he shuts down their temple trade, when he shuts down this huge monopoly exploitation of the poor, it says from that moment they sought a way to kill him. It's when he disturbs their economics and their place in the in the financial hierarchy that they just go after him. Right, and what you're saying is they're. Like, you know, what's the motive, you know, on any crime show, what's the motive? The motive here is money. He, that Jesus is disrupting how they make their gajillions. So Passover is a dangerous time, right? It's literally a celebration of Israel escaping from the bondage of their overlords, Egypt. But of course, now they're under the boot of Rome. And under the boot of Rome, they're celebrating getting out from under their they're under overlords. So already it's like a political hotbed. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem, but he actually travels down with a garrison for Passover because it's such a, a, like a dangerous time. And the last thing that the house of Annas needs is for Jesus to stir up a Passover riot. You know, the day before he comes into Jerusalem on a colt uh, and he's got all these people yelling and saying, here comes the king, here comes the king. That's the last thing that Annas needs. Because if Pilate gets wind of this, he's going to boot the house of Annas from the house of God, and they no longer will have that power, and they will no longer have that money, and they want both. So mm-hmm. it's it's more than just money. It's definitely maintaining power and control. But yeah, these are evil men, and so they brilliantly engineer Jesus's uh, arrest and trial and assassination. And what's interesting is post-Jesus they actually continue to oppress the early church. They are the ones who stone Stephen. They are the ones who arrest Peter. They're the ones who are involved in every persecution of the early church for the next like 30 years. They're, they're crazy people. And, and I never learned about them growing up. And, and I'm super fascinated by them now because they are so evil. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like, um, I'm thinking of like the chosen TV series. We've done an interview with them on this um, season of the podcast with the producers of the show who are trying to like humanize and give sort of color around the stories of the gospels. But um, 
in the same way, what you're describing sounds like made for HBO special kinds of like this sort of, you know, the evil mob family, you know, well, like, I mean, kind of controlling uh, obviously I make movies and I'm praying for financing to make a movie about this. Jesus actually tells a parable about the house of Annas. It's the parable about this rich man with five sons, just like Annas, mm-hmm. who dies and this, this guy dies and goes to hell basically. And he, he says like, please go to my father's house. I have five brothers. And he like literally described, Jesus describes Caiaphas as high priestly outfit. Like it's, it's a barely veiled uh, parable about the house of Annas. Like they're mentioned in the Talmud, they're mentioned in Josephus, they're mentioned in other places outside the Bible as well. And uh, yeah, I kind of just bring it all together in this book so people can, can meet this crazy family. But it really comes down to, you know, Jesus cares about the poor and he cares about uh, the temple being a place uh, to worship God. And the House of Annas just doesn't care about, about Jesus' economics. And it's something that, sadly, the modern church doesn't care about either. Uh, we do not care about interest anymore. We don't care about exploiting the poor. Uh, and Jesus' economics are definitely something that just are completely ignored by the modern church. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Compassion Canada, because I have seen how they are transforming lives. And I think transformation can feel like a little bit of a buzzword. What does it mean? What does it look like? But I've seen it evident in the stories of former Compassion sponsored children, graduates or alumni of Compassion, who are now adults telling their stories of how sponsorship impacted them. Like Ria, who's originally from the Philippines. I've actually had the opportunity to meet her And she talks about this idea that knowing someone who never met her, cared for her, that changed her life. Rhea's story is a powerful highlight about how being sponsored built Christ-like confidence in her that empowered her to take hold of a future free from poverty. It broke cycles of poverty in her family. And I love this because today she's passionate about advocating for kids and sponsors a child of her own from the same community where she grew up, breaking cycles for the next generation and for others in that community. So child sponsorship does transform lives. If you're not sure or you want to know more, there's tons of stories about people like Rhea. You could check them out and check out child sponsorship at compassion.ca slash if only. Compassion.ca slash if only. And as always, the link will be in the show notes. All right, back to the conversation with Jay Brock. Hmm. Well, and Jay, actually, this is, you know, as we're kind of steering towards this part of the conversation, uh, one of the reasons I was looking forward to having you is uh, what I appreciate is that you use these digital, like, ironically, you don't own a cell phone. Maybe that's a side question of like, why don't you own a cell phone? Um, But you're using uh, digital platforms that I'm seeing you on, um, like Facebook or, you know, wherever else, where you're talking about a kind of economic, you're, you're kind of like poking, prodding, challenging. Um, I think when people hear or see you in this conversation today, you know, you, you're a very soft spoken person. Um, you're not coming you're not yelling angrily with a wagging fist. You know, that's not how I'm, how I'm hearing you, but, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that's how people are reading your posts when you'd post them if they don't know you very well. But you're talking about, probably compelled by some of the work you've been doing in scripture, a kind of economics uh, that is really different than what a lot of us uh, are living our lives around to do with, um, well, interest earning and owning property and um, renting it to other people or how we save for our retirement or whatever. So I would just love... um you know, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, obviously, we we don't have time for the full conversation. But just to kind of prod people's curiosity, I'd love for you to share more about that with us. Um, you know, where this is coming from for you or some, some big concerns you have. I think that people, it might lead some people to ask more questions. Yeah. And that's probably the healthiest place to be. I definitely uh, would love to write a book on Christian economics someday. But basically, Christians need to understand how the how the Old Testament law works with the New Covenant. So there's 613 Old Testament laws given by Moses to the Israelites. It's a covenant with God. Keep my commands and I will bless you so you can be a blessing to the world. Super simple. And the Jews are like, nah, we're just going to do our thing. And it's a disaster again and again and again. But God <laughs> is just so faithful. Yeah. Now, those 613 laws, you and I keep most of them. 
like, for instance, like, I don't know anyone who's sleeping with their grandmother. I don't know anyone who's sleeping with their father and their father's son. Uh, I don't know anyone who's like eating uh, bats or like eating the, uh, like the nerves from like a, like a leg, like all these crazy laws that they had. Like, I don't know anyone who plants multiple seeds under their vines at the same time. Like Judaism, you got to remember, like Moses gives them these laws because they've been in, in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and he needs to teach them how to be a free people. We are now a free people. And so we already automatically obey like most of these Old Testament laws. But then God sends Jesus to be the fulfillment of that law. Well, what does that mean, fulfillment of the law? Jesus says, you know, not a single stroke or letter or dot of the Old Testament is going away. I'm just a fulfillment of it. So what does that mean? The best way to describe it is like God fills up the law. So there's at the time, there's a bunch of other rabbis, and they all are like spouting their opinions on the law. Whereas Jesus, he's assuming authorial intent. He's saying like, here's what God meant when he gave you this command. So for instance, the Old Testament says, do not kill. And Jesus says, don't hate. Like if you love people so much that you have no hate in your heart, you're never going to kill someone because you have no hate in your heart. Another one is the Old Testament says like, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says like, if you are so filled with the love of God, you won't even have lust in your life. Like don't even lust. If you don't lust, you're never going to commit adultery. So love actually fills up the Old Testament. So when we read these Old Testament commands, we now live under the law of love, right? We're under the covenant of Jesus now. And so what, so every time I read an Old Testament law, I simply ask, how does love fill up this law? So mm-hmm. for instance, the Old Testament says like, basically don't torture animals before you eat them, right? How does love fill up that law? That's treating animals with respect and dignity and, and care, right? Um, when the Old Testament says, do not charge interest to a fellow Jew, how does love fill that up? Well, Jesus actually answers that one. He says, loan to anyone who asks, even your enemy, and expect nothing in return. So not only can you not charge interest, you shouldn't even expect to get repaid, and you should loan to anyone interest-free. So this is something that Michelle and I have put into practice. We've made over 300 loans, uh, anywhere in size from like $25 to over ten grand, and some of them have been paid back, and some of them haven't, and God's been faithful, and he'll take care of us if we just honor his word, because we're under the law of love. So when we look at the economic laws of the Old Testament, every single one we look at, and there are dozens of them, When we look at those laws, we need to say, how does love fill this up? And when you actually do that, when you study Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you go through these economic laws, and then you see how Jesus fills them up with love, you go, oh my word, the Christian church is so far off base on our money. You know, we've got these radio gurus who are like, snowball your debt and then invest in the stock market so you can make money off of other people, which will then put them in debt so that they'll become part of my course. Like, you're like, okay, it's a good business model, but it's not Christian economics. It's not biblical in any way. Like, exploiting the poor is not the way of Christ. So it's been really interesting to dive into this topic. Like, I think one of the most purposely mistranslated scripture, uh, scripture passages, like, or, or like misunderstood is when Jesus says, the poor will always be among you. Well, mm-hmm. what does he mean when he says that? Does, is that the end of the story? There's always going to be poor people among us? Or is Jesus maybe doing something more here? And the answer is absolutely he's doing something more. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not actually saying that God has forsaken him. He's quoting the Old Testament. This is something that rabbis did at the time. He's quoting the Psalms. Yeah, Yeah. he's quoting Psalms. And it's a Psalm about hope. When Jesus says the poor will always be among you, he's quoting the Old Testament where it says, there will always be poor people in the land. But if you follow my economic commandments, there need be no poor people among you. He's very clearly talking about, he's he's like, hey, guys, you can take care of this. But he's also not talking to all of us in general. He's talking to a specific group of people. That's not a universal, there will always be poor people among you. There aren't poor people when they're obeying in the Old Testament. And the New Testament church, it says there were no poor among them because now they're back to the law of love. They're obeying the Old Testament commands by filling them up. So there's no poor among them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament whenever there's obedience to God. So is Jesus, is, is Jesus a liar or are we just really mistra- mistranslating him? Jesus is not a liar. The poor do not always need to be among us. Now, the poor, we're always going to be among that specific group of people. Why? Because he's talking to these peasants in Bethany, which literally means like house of poverty. And Bethany is under the boot of Rome and the house of Annas. They are being absolutely preyed upon by these economic powers. The best way to describe it to people is the poor will always be among you so long as the rich are above you. If you're not being faithful 
to the laws and commands of Jesus and economics, there will be poor people among you. But he's specifically talking to that group of people. Yeah. The context for that also is he says, um, the, the rest of the verse says, and you can help them whenever you want. The poor will always be among you and you can help them whenever you want. So it's actually an invitation for us to join this. And then Jesus also says, and I, and you will not always have me. Well, we have Jesus. So clearly we actually just need to expand the context and realize there was always going to be poor people among that specific group of people, but there doesn't have to be poor people in the church if we are faithful to God's economy. Right. And so, you know, how this plays out in your thinking and your writing, you know, again, leads to probably a whole other book, a whole other hour on a podcast around what you talk about with how um, we become slaves to our lenders and how we become the slave owners, you know, when people owe us money. And you even talk about like, have you ever looked into your retirement savings? And for example, if you have an investment portfolio, like, do you have any clue like what your money's being invested in? Like that's, that feels like these are like such, such basic questions, I think that you're asking that would, would force, that's why I wanted to bring this into the conversation today. Like, would we be more curious about this? At, at just at a baseline, like what I appreciate about your writing is, um, although maybe we don't agree on, on, you know, all the sort of conclusions you come to, um, I appreciate that you're asking questions that we should all be asking, um, that you're, you're sort of like, let's poke the, let's poke at this a little more, you know, if the, especially if it's paper thin, like there's nothing, there's nothing holding it up. Um, you know, I appreciate, you know, the discovering more about the humanity of Christ the um, cultural and historic context of what he's describing um, immediately then isn't just about Jesus over there. It's about God with us, amongst us, in us. How do we incarnate this ourselves? Which ultimately is the whole point of we're made digital. (laughs) Uh, You know, in this digital world. So maybe as one of my last questions for you, um, maybe we got to get you back and have a whole conversation about that topic particularly especially in this weird economy we all find ourselves in with, you know, banks imploding again, the second and third largest bank crashes in American history, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, why don't you own a cell phone? Let's maybe we'll, we'll kind of end our time together there. Talk, talk to me about, about that decision. That's got to be complicated to live that way today. Uh, so basically about 12 years ago, my wife and I backpacked through Central America volunteering at, eco resorts and intentional communities. And we took the hundred things challenge where you get down to hundred combined items and we got down to 88 items and my crackberry did not make the cut. I grew up half an hour from where blackberry was invented and <laughs> had it on a big fat hip holster. And so I put my plan on hold and we went to central America. And when we were there, we walked down to Lake Nicaragua one day cause Apparently, it's really beautiful, and it was covered in plastic Coca-Cola bottles as far as the eye could see, and just immense poverty. And we saw this teenager, a 19-year-old boy named Daniel, no legs, on crutches, and he hobbled to this rusty fire hydrant, and he sat down, and he pulled out a straw, and he started drinking from a rusty fire hydrant. So we went into the closest shop and bought bottles of water and juice in plastic, and we sat down with him. And we learned a little bit of his story with our kind of broken Spanish. And I just came back from that, a a different person, just like this, this blessing theology, this prosperity theology is total nonsense. The Bible was really clear that we are blessed to be a blessing, that we are just a channel for God's goodness to the world, that we are shalom bringers. And so that it just changed how I viewed money and really just decided to simplify my life after that, just really cut back on possessions and so that's what we did. I own one pair of jeans and one black pair of pants and we just keep it really simple. And I said, I'll turn my cell phone back on when I need it. And that's been like 12 years. I've traveled to 40 countries with my work. I've done film screenings and book signings in almost 500 cities. And I can genuinely say that I haven't needed a cell phone yet. And huh. it's, it's, you know, we made a documentary on teenage porn addiction. It's called Over 18. And I'm so glad I don't have a phone because it's just porn in your pocket. And I've mm-hmm. just, I've never seen porn on a cell phone. And, uh, and I just, I can't imagine having that temptation so close to home. Mm-hmm. The social media addiction, the depression rates among millennial women, uh, when they have things like Instagram, it's just disastrous. All the stats show that this is just not a net win for humanity. 
I think we should probably go back to dumb phones. Honestly, I feel like that's a good place to be just like maps, phone, camera. That's it. Like, um, I, I, I almost, I, I honestly don't know anyone who fully uses their phone just as a tool. It's mostly a toy and the commercial purpose of a cell phone is to deliver ads. And so it needs to addict you in order to deliver ads. That's, that's why Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google are trillion dollar companies because it's just an addiction device. And I just don't need that. I want to be led by the spirit, not by the nudges that are pushing me into a new way of life. I don't know anyone who's happier um, now that they own a smartphone than they were 20 years ago before they had one. I just, I don't see a need for it. And I just want to be in the present. So some like very practical things because, uh, because there's an assumption culturally that you have one. And I know some other people who've tried to go away from phones. And then there's things like, just like you need a QR code to do something. Uh, very, just like very practical. How do, how do you do that? Like if there's a place you need a phone to get the code, the ticket, the key, like how do you print them? Do you print stuff or do you, is there always an alternative that a restaurant will offer you if you don't have a QR code menu? Like I'm just, you know, very, those very practical day-to-day things that make it a barrier for a lot of people to leave their phone, not even just permanently. I mean, just like leave it at home for a few hours. Yeah. Like, I mean, practically speaking, like if, if something demands that I have a phone in order to use the service, I simply don't use the service. I just hmm. do not care. Um, if it's like, so for instance, I took a ferry recently and, and you, you like need to have a QR code. I just like put it on my laptop and held my laptop up when I went through security. Like, okay, um, yeah. you can print something if you need to, but for me, everything comes down to the cost benefit, right? There are costs and benefits to a drug addiction, right? Drugs feel great, but big downsides, right? Mm. To a meth addiction or whatever, like just not good, even though meth I'm presumably feels amazing. Right. Um, same with porn, same with smartphones, uh, same with social media, there are pros and cons to everything. Um, so yeah, we just scaled really back. I, I have Facebook to basically message my mom, uh, and to drop bombs on Facebook, but I don't actually have a newsfeed. I have a newsfeed eradicator. I have a couple of special blockers that have blocked over 4 million ads in the last five years, mm-hmm. which is astounding to think about. That's just from a computer. Imagine how many ads the average person is seeing on a phone and doesn't even know it. All these little nudges are changing us. They're changing our behaviors. And the biggest danger spiritual, with a phone... It's spiritual formation. What it does yeah. is it shows you that you are the center of the universe, right? I am hungry, phone. I am bored, phone. I am whatever it is. You You go to your phone for it and it's actually re- reorientating our love and it's teaching us that we are God and we're not. So do the cost benefit to me, the costs far outweigh the benefits of a smartphone. Uh, I genuinely can say that as time goes on, the, the, the investment gets better every year. It's like compounding gains. Like mm-hmm. I see what's happening to the world around me. I feel like I'm in the anthropological experiment as an observer and I, it's hard to describe until you've been without a phone for a year and you're just like, oh, this is a better idea every day. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Jay, I want to talk more. I want to read more. I want to learn more from you. I know other people will too after getting kind of a a taste of you. Where do you want to send people, ironically, where do you want to send people on the internet um, to more of you? I know you, you do a substat, like where do you tell, tell us where we should go to get more of you and your work. Like, uh, let's just, let's just say go to a God named josh.com. You can watch the trailer for the book, download the first chapter for free. And if you like the writing, the style, and you like what it's about, it would be amazing uh, if people would buy the book and buy copies for their friends. I try to make Jesus really accessible, not only for Christians, but for atheists. So the definition of being a Christian is, is you believe that Jesus is the son of God and God, the son, and that you're going to live your life under his lordship. That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. So I save that for chapter 10, a God, Josh. I do not push God theology on anyone in this book. I, I'm, I'm very clear in, in my writing of what were Jesus's politics, what were Jesus's relationships, what were Jesus's economics, just so that anyone can learn about Jesus. There's so much, you know, it's funny. Most people are like, oh, the church sucks, but I like Jesus. Oh, I don't like Christianity, but I like Jesus. But they don't even know Jesus. Like, I really just want to introduce people to the real Jesus as best I can conceive of him and, and, and let him speak for himself. And then at the end, like Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? It's up to us to decide, is he God? 
Is he a great philosopher, great economist? Is he a crazy person? Is he a suicidal leader of a death cult? I discuss all of that in this book. And so it's a book that you can buy for atheists and agnostics. And also, if you've been in church for 50 years, there's also going to be a lot of surprises for you as well. <laughs> so yeah, good. agodnamedjosh.com. Uh, agodnamedjosh.com. Uh, Jay Brock, thank you so much for being on Warmade Digital. And just thanks for your work. Um, thanks for continuing, you know, as I've said, as we started the conversation, 20 years of knowing you. And it's so encouraging whenever I can see someone who just like that long obedience in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And um, you as well. Just, yeah, just grateful for that. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jay, for the podcast. Loved having him on and getting in his brain about things. You can find more about him at the links in the show notes. Next up, next week on the podcast, we have Bonnie Christian. She's talking about the knowledge crisis that's breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian communities. So if you want to get into this untruth and um, fake news and how all of this political stuff that's going on might be affecting how we view our our faith, our life, our church community, you're going to want to check out Untrustworthy, the conversation with Bonnie Christian next week. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Compassion Canada, who are lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name, and the new podcast, Scripture Untangled by the Canadian Bible Society. As always, we'd love for you to come hit subscribe, rate, review, share, whatever you can do to get these podcasts out to more people. It means that it helps us produce more content. If you find it helpful, who else in your life would find this helpful? All right, we'll see you next week on Word Made Digital.